0: Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back here at the end of the week with my very good friend who is counting the seconds until he can escape this conversation to make it to his L- Labor Day long weekend with his family. Lance, how you doing, buddy? I'm,
1: I'm ready to go on vacation. <laughs> <It's>
0: not... <laughs> no, Let's I know. Go. But you know what? we? I think folks feel you know they, 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 they missed their Lance last week because yeah. we had the, uh, the really good end of life uh, webinar with uh, the... Great uh, certified f- financial planners at your firm, um, and Danny and Richard. Um, so uh, I think we got to give folks a little bit extra today, just to make sure that you know they don't feel too uh, too neglected with their you know the, the market junkies out there. Um, look, there's a fair amount to talk about here. Um, there's some things that are starting to really uh, pick up steam here in an interesting way. Um, first, let's just start with the market action this week. Um, it has been an up week for the markets. Yep. Um, they, they're they still trading a little bit uh, at the time you and I were talking about here, but um, uh, they're up about 150-ish S&P points so far for the week. Um, you have been telling us uh, to expect uh, this sell-off that started to probably be a relatively shallow one, probably going to pick steam back up again. Is that indeed what we're seeing here, you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, you know, as we went through the month of August, um, you know, we had a really good first five months of the year. And I, I you know, I find it kind of interesting because uh, during the five months, first five months of the year, really, you know, February, March, April, May, June, uh, you know, markets are accelerating. we up 15% for the year. And everybody's like, oh, stocks can only go higher from here. Ain't nothing going to stop this train now. And, you know, we we're saying, hey, look, you're going to have a bit of a correction here. And so as soon as you get into a, a little bit of a correction, we say, you know, three to five percent completely normal any given year. Then you have everybody coming. I was like, oh, my God, stocks are never going to stop going down again. And you know, <laughs> it, it just you, you've got to have a little bit of perspective and just say, look, you know what goes up has to come down a bit before it can go up. You know, we talk about stretching a rubber band, you know, historically, you know, when you stretch it as far as you can in one direction, you got to relax it before you stretch it again. So, you know, what we saw over the last month, completely normal. Uh, we got down to, you know, really good level support. If you'll let me share my screen real quick. We can just take a look at a chart. Um, So, you know, this is uh, just basically kind of a short-term look at the markets going back to, you know, kind of July of last year. But you can see we've been in this very defined bullish trend every time that – and really, you can draw these trend lines all the way back to October. But, you know, we've just been in this very defined little bullish rising trend channel. Markets got really overbought back in June and July. You see by the the lower band here, this relative strength index was, was above 70 and that tells you that rubber bands, you know, stretched a little bit too far. And this is why we were sitting there going, "Hey, look, you know, you're going to get a little bit of a correction here because you got to relax that rubber band a bit." And as you can see, you know, we worked off a big that sell off in in August, worked off a big chunk of that overbought condition. The markets held the bottom of that bullish trend. Um, the top chart is just our basic buy and sell signal. It's turned back onto a bullish buy signal from a fairly uh, low level of, as far as a normal oscillation occurs. So everything right now is is all completely normal, and you're getting this kind of uh, of push higher. We broke out of this downtrend that started back in July. So you know you had this downtrend in stocks, like every day it was just selling off. Every day we, you know, the media was like, "We can't, we can't have more than one day of a rally, and then the market sells off again." It's terrible, um, you know that's normal. <laughs> we corrected back to that support line. And now markets rallying again. So again, absolutely nothing wrong with the market technically. Fundamentally, it's, you know, sure, it's overvalued. There's certainly longer term concerns, economically uh, speaking. Um, we're writing a couple of articles on this as, as we speak. Um, but, you know, Jerome Powell did a big favor to the markets last Friday, talking about, um, you know, the fact that the neutral rate really isn't a, an issue for the Fed. They're not really paying attention to that. Their long term goal is two percent inflation. Um, and so that's all very bullish for the markets in the near term. And that's why I saw markets responding kind.
0: All right. Well, keep this chart up for a few seconds here. So, <laughs> you know, you've you've been saying for a good while here um, and I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but the bull case is the technicals. The bear case is the fundamentals, <laughs> and the market continues to look technically bullish here uh, for the reasons you just mentioned. And, and I do want to give you props. You know, when the market was down at the bottom end of that trading range, you know, you were pointing our attention to both the uh, the RSI indicator there at the bottom and, and, and the MACD up at top. But you know, you were saying, "Look, this 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 RSI down at the high 30s here is showing that the rubber band is now getting stretched pretty far to the downside." And you were saying, I expect that it's probably more likely going to start reverting. And you were positioning as such. And kudos to you that that seems to be where the markets have continued to go. So they are continuing to kind of behave in a way that TA would expect them to. Right. Okay. And look, TA is is one of the guidelines you use. It's not the only one. TA isn't a bulletproof predictor of where things are going. I just want to underscore that, that A, the market is still behaving technically as expected. And right now, uh, we're in an environment where again let, let let I'll let you confirm this, but where you think the more likely trend in the near term is is higher still.
1: Well, yeah, a couple of things, you know, and this is this is always the thing that kind of baffles me about investors in general. And you know, even professionals. Uh, you, you know, you you know, when you talk to a lot of professional investors, they're like, "Oh, fundamentals are the only thing that matters." You know, technicals are voodoo. It's just prices, right? Who cares about price? It's, You know, it's just it's a fundamentals, the fundamentals only thing that matter, um, or vice versa. You got other people say, "Hey, technicals are all that matter, and fundamentals are you know, poo poo, right?" So, you know, it's the way I look at it. Is simply is that, little you know, fundamentals matter. You know, what you buy, what you pay for, the valuations you pay for things certainly matter in the long term. Right. So and think about this as, as if you're driving down a road and, you know, I know for a fact as I'm driving down and a road. You know, I can look down the freeway and it can be perfectly straight. You know, if you've ever been on I-10 going from Florida to, to California, it's perfectly straight in a yep. lot of areas. I mean, you can just look for miles and, and nothing, nothing turns. But, you know, eventually there's going to be a turn in the road. So, you know, fundamental investors, they look at that road and go, well, I know that road's going to turn up there, so I'm going to turn now. And so they go driving off the road into the ditch. A technical investor goes, look, I know the road's going to turn up there, but I'm going to watch the, the signs that, that point me that say, you know, curve ahead. Right. And, and I'm going to turn when I see the curve. And that's, and that's really the, the important thing about managing money is understanding that, look, long term, we know that things are going to happen in the short term. Things can defy the fundamental logic. We know that road's going to turn up there somewhere. We just don't know where it's going to turn. So for now, we just have to watch the signpost, which right now tell us the road is straight. So, you know, keep driving ahead and it's fine. I mean, look, you you know, we bought NVIDIA uh, last Monday. Um, NVIDIA had a very nice correction after their earnings. And so we added a little bit of NVIDIA to our portfolio. We owned it before we sold it. Uh, had made 100% gain on the stock, the stock kept running up. So we've been kind of waiting for an opportunity after earnings for the stock to pull back, give us a little entry point. The stock is stupid overvalued, right? It trades at 43 times sales. It is completely ridiculous, the valuation the stock trades at. But technically, right now, that's where the market's hiding out, right? Everything's hiding in these top 10 liquid stocks. And we can talk about safety and liquidity, you know, as a function of what's driving markets. But, you know, So we have to own it because we need participation in our portfolio. We need our portfolio to participate with the markets. But we also have on the other side of that leisure, we have a bunch of other fundamental stuff out there that it's not performing now, but we know that eventually it's going to perform well. So we're willing to to have that component in the portfolio waiting for that to perform. But in the near term, we also have to create performance for our clients. And so that's why we own things that don't fundamentally make any sense, but technically they're doing fantastic right
0: now. Okay, yeah, so this is back to the old, you know, you trade the markets you have, not not the markets sort of you you wish you had or you think there should be. Um, just to build on your your I-10 analogy there, you've got a straight road ahead of you. You're going through the West Texas scrub, right? Looks like the moon out there sometimes. Yeah. And uh, and you know, maybe you've driven the road before, you know you're gonna have to turn right at some point, right? Right. But right now the road is straight, so you're going straight. So. It's like even though you know the road's going to turn to the right at some point, you wait until you get to that crossroads to take the right. You just don't take a right <laughs> on the straight part and start going through that moonscape, right? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And 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 that's and that and look and I think that's the biggest mistake that both investors and analysts and and everybody else you know makes. And look, I, I'm guilty of it too, right? I mean. Um, You know, if I could have had perfect prediction coming into this year, I would have sold everything in my portfolio and bought 10 stocks, right? That's not prudent. That's not smart. That's, you know, that's not being a good fiduciary for our clients to do something like that. But, you know, you know, looking at the data, that certainly would have suggested that was the right thing to do if I just wanted to try to beat the pants off the market. But, you know, again, we have to pay attention to these other things and understand that, you know, predictions are only good for so long. And 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 you know, we've talked about this before, is that you know, people that are making prognostications saying, hey, in 2024, you need to be here because this is what's going to happen, or in 2025, that that's pie in the sky. There is no way anybody can predict that far ahead with any accuracy at all. So because things happen. Hey, and so, it, the old, so your
0: it's point barrier y- right, right you know yeah. predictions are hard especially about the future right
1: exactly and, and uh, it's funny why while, while we, we talk about this uh, let me see if i can find a chart keep keep talking and and i'll see if i can find this other chart i'll, I'll show you but
0: <laughs> okay um well uh, look i mean if if you know if if we want to say you know if we had perfect vision i mean you you should have taken all your clients money and you know walked into the casino yesterday and uh, put it all on the roulette wheel number that was going to come up, right? But yeah. uh, but we we don't live in that world, um, and you know you especially as a fiduciary, and, and maybe we'll we'll talk about that just for a quick second at some point here. You know you, you don't have the luxury of you know taking sort of wild ass guesses and you know running on a hunch. Uh, with your client's capital, you actually have to. You're held to a, a professional standard, right? That basically says, "Look, I have to follow these certain disciplines, uh, and be able to demonstrate that to a regulator that, hey, you know, the decision I made here on this this portfolio allocation was based in this data, given these probabilities." And you really need to be able to defend that to a a rational arbiter that, hey, you were really taking, you know, a, a measured. And, and risk uh, appropriate approach when making a decision, right? So you, in, in many ways, you, even if you wanted to to do something wildly uh, nuts because you had a strong gut feel, you, you really can't. And that's one of the benefits of of working with a professional advisor is, is they are bound to that responsibility.
1: Well, and, and look, and that, you know, that's, You know, it's always a part of the view about what you consider being a fiduciary. You know, I can make the case that I'm a fiduciary by putting you all into an S&P index fund uh, because you'll never do worse than the market. You'll never do better than the market, but you'll never do worse than the market. So, you know, and for me, that's not really being a fiduciary because you're not really providing any service, right? Right. You could just tell that person to go
0: into index fund. You don't need to siphon off of that. Yeah
1: exactly so you know I, so i you know you've got to be careful with that fiduciary term because again you know technically under the sec if i just stick you into a bunch of index funds and then charge you a management fee for that i'm being a fiduciary because i'm you know giving you some advice and i'm not doing anything that's going to cost you a big chunk of capital and and the beautiful thing about that is that if the market's down 50% and you're down 50% in your portfolio that's okay, according to the SEC, because you didn't do any worse in the markets. The risk comes in for an active manager like me is that the market's down 50 and you're down 60 because I made really bad investment decisions. Now I'm responsible because I would have done better for you just by sticking you into an index fund. So, you know, it's, you got to be real, you know, the, that term for the, people throw that around a lot, but I think it's really important to focus on what does that actually mean right. in terms of what am I doing with your money? And not just your money, but the overall service, your planning, everything else that goes into that whole financial service that you're providing, which is why in our shop, you know, we spend so much time on the financial plan, long term, you know, those type of things to really make sure we're providing that fiduciary service to our clients.
0: Yeah. And just, just to help people understand. So let's say I'm in my late 70s, mm-hmm. right? And you take my money and you put me all in half in GameStop and half in Shiba Inu. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Nothing what, wrong
0: would, with them, right? what, what, what would happen, you know, in, in those crater, right? I mean, what would happen in that case? I mean, would you get a call from a regulator and basically do they audit your 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 books? And, you know, like what would happen if they were to say, you know what, that was a wildly inappropriate allocation for well, a fiduciary so, to make?
1: So so in that situation, if that happened, so first thing we do is that the client, right, would go to a lawyer and they would say, hey, I'm suing my advisor because, you know, he put me in these wildly speculative investments, even though I told him I really wanted these, he put me in them. Um, and they lost a bunch of money. And I don't like the fact that I lost money when I thought I was gonna make a bunch of money. So now I want to sue him. So he files a lawsuit with the lawyer against the firm. And then that's going to get picked up by the SEC when that occurs. So they're going to launch an investigation into what's this lawsuit about, um, and then that's going to wind up in front of an arbitration board or it's going to wind up in, and generally these things wind up in settlement. So as soon as you get into a settlement, the, the client says, well, yes, I actually asked for those stocks, but they lost a bunch of money. So now I want my money back. So the insurance company will say, OK, pay them. And so now the, the advisor, regardless of whether he recommended these or not, are going to have a ding on his record for making this recommendation The fine. The, the firm's gonna get fined for making that. And if it was insidious across the whole firm, the firm stands a risk of also losing their ability to practice and the advisor.
0: Okay, and that's it, where it I'm going. Get, it
1: can get very serious.
0: Yeah, and that's where I'm going. So let, let's separate two things, because they're, 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 I know you're saying it because it happens a lot where the client actually asks to do something harebrained, right? But yeah. putting that aside <laughs> for a second, if if the authorities determine that the firm really acted against their fiduciary responsibility, you're saying that the the consequences are actually pretty darn severe.
1: Right. There is. And the reason I brought up the client saying, you know, because we, we get this all the time. And clients come in and say, oh, and look, I get emails from, from even, you know, people that watch this this uh channel that I, you know, respond back and go, we're not an advisor for you. Um, because they are they're asking for things that are absolutely non-realistic. Um, you know, I want, you know, I want to quintuple my money in five years, right? So I want you to manage my portfolio. You know, that's not realistic. And, and by accepting that type of view into our firm, it's, you know, we're having to put what is, is fiduciarily correct for that person, you know, out the window to try to generate this five times return over five years thing. And that's not being a good fiduciary. Our, our responsibility is to look at you and say, that's not a realistic goal. That's not good for you. And we won't do it. Um, You know, as a firm, we will not honor your wishes of buying you AMC and GameStop. We're not going to do that because it's not it's not right for you. You'll need to go find another advisor.
0: Right, and so you're trying to do the right thing for the person and you, you're honestly trying to protect your firm because you're held to these higher standards. Okay, didn't want to rattle on this, but really interesting. Um, I, I got a number of things I want to get to, but real quick, I think you were searching for a chart. Did you find it? I
1: did, I, I found it. So here, let me uh, just, let me share this here real quick. And, and the reason I bring this up is because again, we were talking about predictions, right? And and this is, and I've brought up this example in the past and, I, and actually just recently, the Daily Shot published uh, this, this, this chart. And it was from, a uh, uh, about weather forecasting accuracy over time. And I brought up the fact that they used to do a survey of everybody that made predictions, meteorologists, psychologists, you know, psychics, all this other stuff and media and, and meteorologists were the most accurate for three days in advance. And I thought it was interesting because, uh, uh, daily shot just published this chart last, uh, on Thursday and this is weather forecast accuracy based on air pressure, and they are nearly 100% accurate three days ahead. Once you get to 10 days, that accuracy falls to 50%. uh, 50%. So they're only a a coin toss 10 days into the future. And so I'll bring this up is is the reason this is important is because you hear all these people on TV, the media, financial analysts, et cetera, going, Oh, well, next year earnings are going to do this and the economy is going to be here. And because of X, Y is going to happen and this is the result of this. You know, it's it's some of that's based on data. A lot of it's based on historical past data. Um, but if if weather forecasting, which is based on real-time data, is only accurate 50% of the time, 10 days in the future, how how when you're talking about 365 days in the future or five years in the future, how accurate do you think that really is? and particularly in an environment that is impacted by so many different variables from economics to politics, to geopolitics, to monetary policy, to fiscal policy, you know, all those things can change from one month and one year to the next. It's going to completely change the outcome of whatever prediction it's today. So my point is, is making any bet longer. This is why, right. I bought Nvidia. Right? I can't believe he bought Nvidia. It's so overvalued. Even he says it's overvalued. He bought it. It's because it's going up <laughs> and, and I need to own those top 10 stocks right now, because that's what's driving the bulk of the returns in the market this year. I know it's overvalued, but this is what the data's saying right now. And and that prediction is going to be right for about 10 days to, to 30 days. But when that when that data changes, I'll sell it and I'll move on to something else. But you know, this is you know, this is why it's important when you start talking about very long-term outlooks on things. Oh, I'm convinced that you know the world's gonna be like this in, in five years. Maybe. You know, this is the whole problem with, with, you know, people talking about climate change. And, you know, 1980, we were talking about the world was going to be on fire by 2000. And we're still talking about this. Right. Or later. underwater by 2020. But yeah. Yeah. And Plymouth Rock is still in the same place it was in 1620. <laughs> so, you know, it is, it's, the water level is still the same. So the, the point is, is that, you know, all these events can certainly take pay, place, right? You know, these things can certainly happen. But timing of those events and and the actuality of how the event turns out can be very different things because of all these different impacts that occur over time and and things that will change. You know, will the Fed you know cut rates? Will they start doing QE? You know, what, what's that going to mean to markets? You know, that's that's what we're going to be dealing with.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Um, great point. Great reminder. Um, I, I, I don't want to get into it yet, but I do want to get into it very soon. Um There's now a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, diverging opinions on what's going to happen with long treasuries, right? Just to show how you can have smart people look at the (laughs) same environment and come to very different conclusions, right? So uh, we're going to dive into that. I see you kind of smirking there. Um, Yeah, I've made charts for you. Okay, good, good. (laughs) Um, But before we get there, two questions. One, just about NVIDIA, um, because I'm sure some people are, are Listening to the, or thinking this, which is okay, you know, I, I get Lance is making a technical, uh, taking a technically based position here with Nvidia. Um, hey, what happens if he's wrong? What happens if he's top ticking Nvidia right now? So, what sort of defense do you have in place for that?
1: Well, so the the stock had 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 spiked up on earnings, right, and then sold off entirely on the day of earnings came back down, had tested reasonable support. It's been in a consolidation range now for about three months, broke out of that consolidation range, um, or actually, sorry, came back down and retested and held that consolidation range, which gave us the entry point we're looking for. It got oversold, it triggered a MACD buy signal, just like the market. Um, And so it, it made a decent entry point. So if it takes out that stop level, we'll sell the position.
0: Okay, so basically, you've got a stop level in place that you know. Okay, great.
1: Yeah, but we okay. But we never buy a position without having a stop on.
0: I imagine that, but I'm glad that you're specifying yeah. that for so, folks here, right? Yeah, I mean, and again, some people I, I, go. I, I'm doing it, it, this instructively so that people realize yeah. and learn what a professional financial advisor yeah. does. He just doesn't take a willy-nilly long position, right? There's a lot of logic behind it.
1: Well, yeah. And and look, and and some people go, well, you know, you're down on TLT this year and, you know, you haven't been stopped out of it. Yeah. Our stop level is actually a lot lower than where it is now because you got to break a whole bunch of of economic trends to hit that stop level. We're not there yet. So, yeah, the the position's down, but our thesis on long term treasury still holds. And in fact, where we are going to sell TLT and we talked about this not last Friday because I wasn't here, but the Friday before we are going to sell TLT, probably going to do it on Monday because rates have now gotten to the to kind of our ideal entry point that we've been looking for. So we're going to so basically sell TLT and then buy an equivalent 20-year treasury bond and replace that ETF in all of our portfolios with an actual treasury bond and lock in that rate that we've been looking for that we think will probably be the top in rates here for quite some time.
0: Interesting. Okay. Um, again, I want to wait to really get to this conversation because there's one more I want to have before, but just to clarify for folks, because I think the other week you guys were still contemplating selling TLT, but because you were going to buy it, perhaps another ETF that was even further out the duration curve. But sounds like you've made the decision. No, we're just going to buy the bonds themselves.
1: Yeah, and and that's and that's and it really came down to a couple of different factors. You know, one was you know there, there's a couple of things that drive portfolio allocations um, and and portfolio changes. One of those is sizing. Um, we have portfolios that range kind of all across the gamut. And this is why when you talk to most financial advisors, they typically have a minimum asset size. Like, Hey, we'd love, we'd love for you to be a client, but you got to have at least half a million dollars for us to do it. And it's not, you know, there, there's, there are a couple of business reasons for that. It's very hard to, to, to be financially efficient in terms of running a business with very small investment accounts, but it also comes down to position sizing. Uh, You know, Sometimes if I'm trying to buy like a Chipotle Mexican real, right? Uh, that stock, it trades about $1,690 a share last time I checked. So if I'm going to buy one share of that, at $1,690 a share. And if you have a $10,000 account, all of a sudden I've got 16% in one stock. One share of one stock makes up 16% right. of the account. So that just doesn't make sense on an allocation basis and that's why you know typically you need larger amounts of dollars to do a proper allocation across you know so many stocks and so many bonds. But anyway, uh, long story short, we were working through all the math, and we had long conversations with our broker dealers that we work with, and we were able to work out a position to where we could buy and sell very large blocks of, of an actual Treasury bond, even in smaller accounts. That it made sense to, rather than buying another ETF, it's just swapping all of our ETFs for an actual bond.
0: Okay, all right. Um, I'm sure we got people's attention with that. So, okay, Um, we'll revisit that a little bit later on this conversation if need be. Um, Before we get to the long bonds, um, I just wanna talk about some more market news this week, um, which is jobs, Mm -hmm. right? Looks like we may be finally seeing some fracture lines that, that matter beginning to appear in the jobs market. Um, so we had the Jolts report recently, and that was disappointing, right? Jobs openings. So um, we're, we're beginning to, uh, interviewed Stephanie Pomboy recently, and she said she has a whole report out there called, she titled the report Jaws, because we have so many data points where we have these like big divergences going on that create these alligator jaws that are now beginning to start, starting to close. So we're starting to see that, that disparity between job openings and job applicants begin to narrow. It hasn't closed yet, right? But that's something that's been persisting for a couple of years now. And it seems like the Fed is finally beginning to make progress towards starting to cool off the jobs market now. That's beginning to start to close. But I think more, more, more meaningfully was today's non-farms payroll report, yeah. right, where actually the August number was a beat, right? Uh, and we've had to beat, you know, pretty much almost every month this year, I mean, this year, this year, almost every month has been a beat versus expectations. But then, you know, they give the the rosy new number, right? Oh, this was a beat. And then they go and, you know, behind the scenes and they, they revise down the previous numbers, right? And Lance, it's gotten to the point now where they have now revised down every single month of payrolls for this yeah. year, for 2023, right? Um And uh, let me just read this real quick. July was revised down by uh, 30,000 jobs. Um, June was was revised even more by 80,000, which means that uh, a number that was originally reported as 209,000 as a big rosy number has been revised 50% lower to 105,000 and a collapse versus the original expectations of 230. Um, So, you know, we're just seeing... One, this this sort of, you know, false window painting, lipstick on a pig, look how great the current month's numbers are. And then, of course, those numbers get revised as soon as the next month's numbers are out. Um, What's really important about this is with these revisions, the unemployment rate is now beginning to move, right? And it had a pretty big jump month over month from 3.5% annually to now 3.8% annually. So we're beginning to see that number, which was, you know, super rock steady for so long, begin to start to move higher. Um, At the same time, wage growth uh, is continuing to slow, right? I think we're at like 4.3% year over year right now, but you can definitely see the trajectory is, you know, beginning, the balloon is beginning to sink here. Um, So we've got, um, uh, you know, more people not working now, jobs numbers really beginning to look a lot weaker than they have in the past. The, the, the monkeying with the data, which you and I have have said, we thought's going on behind the scenes. Definitely, now we've got proof it really is going on, um, and um, and the wage uh, pressure. You know, we we had a little bit of of a moment there where it looked like workers, you know, might be beginning to get some bargaining power. Seems like that's sort of fast dissipating. So I mention all this because you and I have spent a lot of time talking about the importance of of employment. Uh, where it's sort of you know Michael Kantrowitz and his hope framework, that's been the last bulwark against entering into recession. We we've been watching that E closely because if that starts getting wobbly, that makes the likelihood of a recession more probable. Um how how much has this data caught your attention?
1: I mean and it's it's great for bonds, by the way, um, because this is, you know, going back to our bond thesis is that Weaker economy is exactly kind of what you're looking for. But no, I mean, look. It's, it's, sorry
0: to interrupt that, but it, the stupid thing is it's good for stocks too, right? I mean, yeah. stocks have, well, have jumped on the news because, hey, bad news is good news, right?
1: It, it, well, yeah. And we actually had, had that discussion earlier this week on our podcast, which is, you know, this we're back to that bad news is good news thing. Why? Because bad news means that the Fed is unlikely to hike rates further from here. And so that also means that we're closer to rate cuts, which in theory, this is the mistake <laughs> the market's making is that in theory, rate cuts are great for stocks, right? More monetary liquidity, reversal of QT back to QE. That's what everybody's kind of hoping for. 12 years of stimulus um, was, was all great for stocks. What everybody forgets though, is that initially when the Fed starts cutting rates, they're cutting rates because they're trying to stop something from breaking or or they're trying to fix something that's broken. And that's not going to be good for stocks at all. And you're going to see a, a big decline in the markets at that point. And, and again, this is, you know, why we pay such close attention to the data. But, you know, that's, you know, you know, look, the numbers are still positive, right? So first of all, let's not get the cart too far ahead of the horse. Yes, employment is slowing. It is it is certainly concerning that it's slowing. And a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about for a while is certainly starting to kind of show up in the cards, right? We're starting to see weaker growth, weaker job openings, those type of things. But it's not recessionary yet. Yep, so it's
0: still above water. It's yeah, just yeah. struggling. So, yeah.
1: It's struggling. And, and, but no, but this is good stuff to pay attention to saying, hey, look, there's certainly you know, going back to your Jaws analogy, there's fins in the water. Probably don't <laughs> jump in the water. Right? <laughs> so, you know, probably means stay in the boat, but it doesn't mean you got to get out of the water, right? You, you stay in the boat and drive back into shore at your, at your leisure. Uh, just don't try to swim. Um, but, you know, this is, you know, this, look, all this is stuff is kind of playing out, you know, this lag effect that we've talked about, at, you know, ad nauseum for months now, we're starting to see that begin to actually take root. And again, you know, we talked about in 2022, everybody was expecting a recession. And we said, hey, you know, everybody expects a recession. Bob Farrell says, if everybody expects something to happen, probably not going to happen. Now, nobody expects a recession. Earnings estimates are getting dragged higher. Economic analysts are, are ratcheting economic growth rates higher, and that's exactly kind of what you want to see, because now we have all the experts on, the, on one side of the boat again saying, oh, well, we're not going to have a recession, which actually, in, the, in, in theory, kind of sets us up to have the recession now. So maybe in 2024, we actually see kind of the early maturation of that recessionary environment.
0: All right. Yeah, as we've talked about, that that is beginning to build the slope of hope right, (laughs) that a bear market likes to go down. Um, Yeah, you mentioned the lag effect. And man, I talk about it all the time. Um, But it blows my mind how the market is totally ignoring it on on both sides, right, which is the lag effect of all the tightening and and hiking that's been done, right. So you know, that's what's likely what you and I think fundamentally is likely to kind of drag things down from here, right. Um, And and, and that's the gravitational effect of that is likely going to get Stronger the further we go in the timeline here is is the lag effect fully expresses it, at that full magnitude, but also if the Fed, if and when the Fed pivots, I mean the Fed will pivot at some point in time. There's a lag effect to stimulus, right? It takes quarters for that stuff to start getting expressed in the economy, which is why, as we've talked about a lot, when we enter into you know a recessionary period where the Fed starts cutting going into it. Like, oh, okay, we see the recession now, it's time to start cutting. The markets usually go down for several quarters, yeah right? But the yeah, market's and, ignoring both of those.
1: Well, and again, you, you know, again, let's go back to the highway analogy, right? The, the, market, the market is aware of this stuff. And again, as we talked about before, you know, the stuff that we talk about now, um is already getting priced into the
0: market. You and I don't have any data that the full market has. Yeah, we get it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and but you know everybody's talking about stuff, right? So everybody's talking about you know whatever you want, to, you know, China or you know Europe or whatever it is, um, housing, whatever whatever the the issue du jour is that everybody's stressing over, the market's already pricing that in, right? And so here we are. We're on the freeway and it's perfectly straight right now, and that's what the markets see. And so the markets are just basically playing what the environment is that's directly ahead of them. And remember, I'm I'm writing an article on this uh, for uh, Tuesday after next, talking about portfolio managers. You know, the reason that the top 10 stocks continue to perform the way they're performing is because everybody's piling into those top 10 stocks because they're safe. They have tremendous amounts of cash on the books. Think about how much cash Apple, Microsoft, Google have on the books, Mm like billions, hundreds of billions of dollars just between them. Uh, You take a look, you know, we talk a lot about money market fund balances and it's like, oh, everybody's piling into money markets. That's not retail. Retail is a very small chunk of money market fund balances. It's mostly pensions, major corporations, you know, hedge funds, mutual funds, et cetera, that have billions of dollars in cash in the money markets. That's where most of that money market pile is coming from, and these companies like Apple, Microsoft, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett—they're just—they have nothing to do with cash right now that that's worthwhile. So they're just shoving it into five percent money market. Why wouldn't I? Right? I mean, it's—I'm it's, getting a great return on my cash. Why not just stick it there? So you know, for for investment managers, they're going okay. I need a place where I can stick money that it's easy in, easy out. I can I can put ten billion dollars to work in Apple today. And I won't move the price of the stock and I can yank it out tomorrow and it won't move the price of the stock because so much money trades in Apple every single day. You try to do that with a small cap company, um, you're going to send the stock price either rushing off to the moon (laughs) or crashing one or two. You just can't move that much money in and out of the stock. There's no liquidity. So when I'm in an environment where I've got to have money, look, I've got to have money invested. Um, We've talked about career risk before. If, you know, if I'm if I'm not. You know, performing with the market, I'm going to suffer a bit. you going to lose career. clients. Yeah. Yeah. I'm either going to lose clients or my job, depending on how bad the performance was. Um, so, career risk is a very real thing. So, as a portfolio manager, I've got to have exposure to the markets. The markets are going up. I keep piling into those top 10 stocks because easy in, easy out. Furthermore, if you take a look at interest coverage, and I put some charts out on this on Twitter last week, I'm going to re- I'm actually covering this in this weekend's newsletter. On the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, so if you haven't subscribed, you should subscribe there. You uh, should,
0: everybody. Go go, go to realinvestmentadvice.com. Absolutely.
1: So, but this weekend's newsletter covers this uh, Andrew Lapthorne over Society General. And, and I have a good a good buddy of mine, um, Albert Edwards at Society General. We put out some fantastic research, but Andrew Lapthorne did some really interesting coverage. One of the things that's been a, kind of a, a phenomenon over the last couple of years is that interest service of companies is actually declining, even though interest rates have been going up. And so right. it's kind of a head scratcher. And what it turns we, we out We talked
0: about this, but yeah. a lot of people have forgotten. So so this is really interesting.
1: Yeah, so the the head scratcher about that was, is how can that be if interest rates are going up then interest coverage, you know, interest service should be going up, not down. Well, it was because all these big major companies, Apple, Microsoft, Google, they went and financed at zero rates. They were out, you know, Apple was borrowing billions of dollars to do share buybacks at virtually zero interest rates. And so now they don't have any debt maturities and there's no reason uh, for, even though interest rates are going up, their interest service is, is basically coming down because they don't have any refinancing. However, once you drop out of that large cap and go to mid cap and small cap, there's real problems there. And they have a tremendous amount of term loans coming due in 2024 and 2025, and they don't have the interest service coverage to cover that. So now back to why I'm hiding in mega cap stocks. If I buy small and mid cap, and by the way, if you haven't looked at the mid cap index, it's gone nowhere since October. The S&P large cap index and NASDAQ large cap index, they're up 15, 30 percent for the year. Mid cap, small cap, nowhere, just flat line, because nobody wants to be there because that's where the risk is. And if they can't cover their interest service, and if they come up on a refinancing in 2024, 2025, and they can't refinance, you're going to see bankruptcies really start to rise. Bankruptcies are up 71% year over year. Now, that sounds like a lot. But when, you know, it's math. But if you had zero bankruptcies (laughs) last year, and one bankruptcy this year, that's 100% increase, right? So it sounds like a lot is like, wow, they're up 71%. The world's coming to it. No, you you had virtually no bankruptcies a couple of years ago. Now you've got a few, but that is going to start to accelerate in that small and mid-cap space if a interest rates don't come down soon um, before they have to refinance. Or if they have to refinance and cannot get financed, then you're going to have a, a real problem on that. So that's why there's no money flowing into the small and mid-cap stocks. And that's why they're underperforming. And that's why money's just piling into large caps. It's safety and it's liquidity.
0: All right. I got, we are not going to make it through my list. Um, because I, I got to ask a question around this. Um, so you know, market and you made a great explanation for why this is happening, but but many market participants are kind of seeking the safety, hiding out in these large cap stocks, and you know, in, in this year, getting appreciation, right? Those stocks have been performing well, right? You know, is that old saying like trees don't grow to the moon, right? Like, you know, how long can this persist for where these top ten companies really become more and more and more of the market, right? end of the economy, right? Um, uh, and kind of around that, like what what would it what will it take um, to you know, if they begin to hit limits, what will it take? Will, will it actually have to take a recession? Will these companies just have to start making less for this this trend to, to begin to break
1: up? Well, remember, it's it's always, always about earnings and earnings expectations. Right now, these stocks are going up because expectations for earnings growth is fairly strong going forward. You know, look, let, let's take NVIDIA as kind of the darling of, of everything right now, AI. It's gonna rule the world. And so, you know, it was interesting in their last earnings report. So, so go back two quarters, they had an earnings report. and They said, we expect our sales to grow by 50% over the next quarter. Okay, so 50% growth. They 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 nailed that, but they did that well. Um, because they already had orders coming in from Elon Musk. Right, they
0: could see it, yeah.
1: So they knew what was coming in. So he said, our, our sales growth will be up 50% over the next quarter. Okay, uh, Adam, you're pretty good at math. Uh, what's 50% times four? Two. 100, right? So 200%. Okay. So if I annualize 50% sales growth over the next four quarters, that's 200% sales growth. Wow. I certainly want to own a company that's growing their sales at 200%. So stock runs up. When they announced the in the latest quarter, they said, we estimate our sales growth annualized to be 170%. That's actually a slower rate of sales growth than what they reported the previous quarter. So it's still strong. I mean, you cannot deny 170% sales growth, but it is getting weaker. So at right. some point, if the economy slows down and all of a sudden these, you know, this this piling into AI as an example and everybody building out data centers and all that, there's going to be a point of maturation where you get to kind of peak AI, right? And, and we've seen this with the dot com bubble and everything else. There's not to your point. Trees don't go to, go to the sky there will be an end to this. And, and so what is gonna drive money out of these big mega cap stocks? So two things, for uh, two things. first of all, we've got to reach the point to where people start to question the earnings, right? Or actually earnings decline, you know, Apple's comes out and says, hey, you know, we only sold 40% of what we, we thought we'd sell in iPhones, you know, last quarter. And NVIDIA comes out and says, well, we screwed the pooch. We only sold half of what we thought we were gonna sell. A big order fell through for whatever reason that's going to cause those stocks to come down rather sharply because again i've got to start repricing those those valuations right the stock price versus what i'm actually paying for that's got to get repriced so that's going to cause money to flow out of those assets but here's the other problem where's it going to flow to money can't so you know money's like energy you can't you can't destroy energy it just changes form but energy is always energy so money's got to go somewhere. And so if money's coming out of the top 10 stocks and you're in the middle of a recession because, look, if Apple, let's be honest, if Apple ain't cutting it, nobody else is either, most likely. So where's money going to go to? Well, if your thesis is that in a recession that interest rates are going to be taken off to the moon, then it can't go to bonds. So money's got to go somewhere and it's not going to go to cash. So again, money because money it, it, you're not going to pay a mutual fund or a hedge fund to be in cash, right? So they've got to invest that money somewhere. So you've got to make the premise, and I'm not I'm not denying the fact that ultimately some this rotation will occur, but when this rotation occurs, and while it will be during a recession, you've also got to understand where will money flow to, and be early to that bet. All
0: right. Well, that's a good segue then to the next topic here, right? Which is treasuries. Okay. Right? <laughs> In that type of environment, I would think that a good chunk of that money, you know, recession, trouble in the big darlings, money is going to be freaked out. It's going to seek safety, right? So that's an argument for going into the the long, the, the U.S. Treasury bonds. Um, as I as I said back earlier in this video, um, you know, we've had a number of people on this channel of late. Um, I would say you're probably at the, the front of that crowd, you know, waving the, the flag. Saying, hey, we think this is a really good time to be looking at long duration treasuries, right? You gave a nod earlier to some of the decisions you're making, you know, in real time around this. Um, we had Luke Roman on this channel earlier this week, who really had a very different thesis, um, and and I, I, I love that because it's a thoughtful thesis. You may disagree, and you know that's what makes a market, right? Is when intelligent people come up with with different opinions. Um, I don't know if you had a chance yet to, to look at that segment at all, um, but if so, um, you know, uh, h- how would you react to Luke's argument, which was sort of heavily based in uh, the price of oil, right? Where, you know, he he basically says, look, you know, oil is, is going, we've sort of seen peak cheap oil. He expects oil prices to go higher from here. Um, oil will almost sort of be the new Fed funds rate. Right. It'll be the limiter on the economy, but it's one that the Fed really can't control. And in fact, he thinks that if we get into a you know rough patch economically and the Fed stimulates, um, that's going to goose the economy, which will then increase demand for scarce oil, shooting oil prices even higher, having that act as an even greater break. So, you know, so his outlook is based in that. Um, what's, what's your general reaction to him?
1: So, you know. I, I never disparage anybody. So to your point, you know, your, you know, his views are just as valid as my views versus anybody else. Because, well, as I said earlier, unless we're predicting what's going to happen in the next ten days with the weather, nobody has any idea. But you know, I think there's a few things that we have to think about, right? So, um, so first of all, let's let's go under the assumption that you know oil prices are going to rise dramatically. Right. We're going to let's, let's just throw out a, a number. Let's say three hundred dollars a barrel. OK. Um, so let me ask you a few questions. And which would be awesome. Armageddon. Well, <laughs> yeah, but let me just ask you a few questions. OK, so if oil prices go to three hundred dollars a barrel, what happens to economic activity?
0: Yeah. Grinds to a halt.
1: Right. If economic activity grinds to a halt, then what are oil producers going to do if they're not selling oil?
0: Well, they're certainly going to stop drilling for it. They're right. going to stop producing it.
1: <laughs> right. And and so you're going to have a, a cut in production. So if oil prices are high, but they're not shooting off to the moon, right? And if, and if oil prices are, are rising in kind of a normal fashion, um, and the the price of oil is at is a good level, what are oil producers going to do? They're going to produce more, right? Right. right so one of the theses that luke that luke brought up and i thought was interesting because he talked about uh shale production which has been declining as of late and that's a true statement it's interesting that post the kind of economic shutdown we did have a recovery in the number of drill uh, of, of drilling rigs out there but drilling rigs didn't actually retrace back to the number of drilling rigs didn't retrace back to previous peaks where you thought they would be but a lot of this has to do with the current administration which is you know restricted a lot of drillings won't give permits the permits they do give are in areas that they don't want to drill in. a whole variety of issues right.
0: yeah it, a lot of uncertainty as to whether the oil companies will get back their investment and also higher interest rates since high yeah. interest rates have gone up it's more expensive to drill and a lot of the guys only and, were getting along because of the cheap money yeah
1: and also don't forget higher labor costs right so wages yep. in all this right so lot of reasons why economically we haven't seen the number of wells come up. So, you know, the the point though is if you have high oil prices, ultimately you're going to have more production. If you have more production, then demand is going to, you know, you're you have a supply demand balance that's going to keep oil prices capped at some level, right? So it's just it's always about production supply. And and I just wrote an article, Friday's article uh, on our website. Uh, is about <laughs> Jerome Powell last week, and I'm gonna, a quick deviation, uh, but I'm going to come back to Luke's point um, because it, I actually touch on this a little bit in that article. But it's talking about Jerome Powell, who was very disingenuous and uh, really went out of his way to obfuscate the the cause of inflation. He blamed the Russia-Ukraine war, and he said he said you know this Russia-Ukraine war created the supply-demand imbalances to create inflation, and that's that's as much I can never hear from any one person in one speech because it is simply a function of economics 101. You have little, de- too little demand because the government literally shut down the economy and sent everybody home and said, do not come to work. So you shut down the economy. So you have this contraction in supply. And then you send those, those same people that you sent home from work and said, don't work. I'm gonna send you $5 trillion in cash to go spend. So you have this massive surge in, in demand against the backdrop of, of man-made created supply contraction. And so you had inflation. And, and as Milton Friedman once said, you know, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. So blaming the Russia-Ukraine war was very disingenuous by Powell, but I get it, right? He's got to protect himself. He's got to protect the administration so he can't lay the, the blame at the feet of the people that it responds to, which is the government. For doing the monetary policy in his own feet for doing the, the, the fiscal policy. So, you know, I get it, right? We gotta we gotta obfuscate the truth. But uh, again, you know, when we take and, and specifically in that article, I go through some of the impact. So if you're gonna blame the war, right? You have to so what does Russia and Ukraine provide to the world? They provide what? Primarily a lot of oil. <laughs> and what comes out of Ukraine? Wheat, right? Food. food.
0: Yeah. Right. Oil so and wheat
1: and food. food. What are the two things that we exclude when we calculate inflation?
0: Yeah, <laughs> energy and food.
1: <laughs> so if you're looking at core inflation, which is what the Fed looks at, mind you, and you strip out food and energy, that whole argument goes right out the window because we're talking about core inflation. We're talking about everything else that's in the economy. Okay, but here, let me share share with you a few charts here. Um, I even presented, I even did a little PowerPoint presentation. I'm joking, but... Uh, <laughs> i, think uh,
0: I gotta appreciate that and, and while he's pulling this up folks yeah i had a lot of people email me after luke's interview saying hey you know can you really make sure to dig in with lance to get his thoughts uh you know on the other side of luke's argument so lance being the uh star pupil he is uh put together this powerpoint presentation
1: yeah so uh hold on let me if i can get it to actually cooperate with me okay so This is a long-term history of oil prices going back to 1946. That's as far back as I can actually get oil prices. And and look, through time, we've had a ton of reasons why we've had surging oil prices for one reason or the other. Um, The Iranian Revolution back in the the, the late 70s, going to the early 80s, we had this big spike in oil prices. Of course, interest rates went up at that time. Very different environment. We had no deficit debt to household income was extremely low um debt in the overall economy was was very nascent corporate debt was very low so you know higher interest rates at that point against a backdrop of very strong economic growth rates running at eight and nine percent very high savings rates back then high interest rates were not really a problem um but that was a function and then we'll get we'll have some comparisons here with interest rates in seconds so just bear with me but you know, we did have that big spike in oil prices. And then oil prices go nowhere for about 20 years. And this is the hard part for people to understand is that this, this is 2023. And we're worrying about oil prices at 80 bucks or 100 bucks, 120 bucks. Everybody forgets that in the turn of the century in 2000, oil was $20 a barrel. Hmm. So yep. all this all this stuff that's happened since the turn of the century and really... Really, the the phenomenon of higher oil prices has been a function of really post-financial crisis events. What has all been in common with that era of our financial situation? And that's been the Fed injecting literally- I would say,
0: yeah, low interest rates, record low interest rates,
1: right? Record low interest rates and quantitative easing. There's a very high correlation between inflows and outflows of quantitative easing. In other words, you have a QE program, you don't. You have a QE program, you don't. And oil prices, because again, there's a very direct correlation between the amount of drilling that happens when you have monetary impacts into the economy from the Federal Reserve, and then ultimately what happens with oil prices. But let's let's go back to two thousand and
0: eight. Hey, sorry to interrupt, but I just I want to build off that observation for okay. one second. So there are two things that a lot of people in the macro world point to as just sort of sea changes that mm-hmm. that then influence you know markets, economies, world events. One is uh Nixon slamming the gold window shut in 1971 and you okay. can kind of see that here on the chart well very soon after that oil prices really started rising right yeah. and then there's the era of QE right which is correspondent there with the the jump from you know average $30 oil to now average $80 oil right yeah
1: and and the, the gold window, you know, certainly is is a viable argument, but it kind of loses a lot of its metric considering that oil prices were at $20 a barrel for 30 years. You know, so so again, you know, the, the whole gold oil relationship kind of falls out of bed in the 80s and the 90s. Um, monetary policy holds a lot better correlation uh, recently in the in the last 10, 15 years, but you know, we can debate that till the cows come home. Uh, but I think the most important one is that spike in 2008 where we have peak oil. Uh, A lot of people probably don't remember the fact that everybody's running around with their hair on fire, talking about peak oil. We're running out of oil. We're not producing enough oil. There's simply not enough oil on the planet to to meet our demands. And the world's going to end because of this. And then all of a sudden we had this miraculous invention called shell oil drilling. And then more, and then all of a sudden we had more supply than we knew what to deal with. Um, And so you know we go through these phases of you know we're running out of oil we don't have enough oil now we've got too much oil and that's just a function of how economies work over time if there is a deficit of anything somebody's going to step in and fill that gap somebody's going to step in and fill the void that exists that's how capitalism works and that's why capitalism works over time and it creates massive wealth within 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 countries um but importantly just like ai right now uh, you know, there's a there's a deficit of GPUs in the AI space. If you're building out cloud data centers and all that, there's simply one guy to go to right now, and that's Nvidia. And they kind of cornered the market, and they've got a big moat. But eventually that deficit, we talked about this before, is going to drag in more and more competitors. There's gonna be a new company you have never heard of that's gonna show up in the next couple of years It's gonna make the best GPU on the planet. And everybody's gonna to shift to them because it's gonna be a better GPU at a cheaper price. Um, who's gonna make it? I have no idea, the company probably doesn't exist yet, but that's what's gonna happen. Some, or somebody's gonna come up with something better than a GPU, so just like we had you know, traditional oil drilling back in 2006, 2007, we're running out of oil, simply not enough oil out there. And then some Yahoo in Texas sits there and goes, you know what, I bet I could get some oil out of the cracks in the ground. And they come up with shell drilling. And you know, we have a whole new economic environment for producing oil and gas. But here's the here's the important part about this. Let's keep moving on. So this is oil. This is the history of oil prices going back. You can see the spike in the Russia-Ukraine war, obviously, concerns. And, and I remember also very quick, the very important part as we talk about all this, oil prices are not set by supply and demand. Oil prices are, are set by Wall Street and the NyMex. These are these are oil commodity futures traders betting on the price of oil over a, a set period of time with futures. And that's what drives the actual price of oil that, that's traded on a daily basis. So again, you know, this is a very important. Remember, this is a function of finance of what happens on Wall Street. Okay. Um, so this is oil prices relating to kind of the economic situation. So, you know, we have backwardation that occurs in oil prices. And then when that backwardation corrects itself, you then typically when you have that backwardation, you are in a problem of some sort. Like a financial crisis, a manufacturing recession, the the Brexit t- taper tantrum issue, uh, the trade war, uh, you know, with President Trump. When you get these backwardations, then you have this unwinding, and that leads to this collapse in oil prices that occurs on a regular basis. All right, sorry, can
0: you can you explain for folks what backwardation is?
1: So, yeah, that's a good question, Adam. So backwardation is when the current price or the, or the spot price. So, again, we were just talking about a second ago that, that really the price of oil is driven by the futures market and what's happening on Wall Street more than anything else. But it's when the current price or, or what we call the spot price of crude, uh, and, and in this case, that's the underlying, and you can have backwardation in any asset, but in particular, I guess, oil is higher than the prices that are trading in the futures market. And that can occur from time to time again because how does that happen? Is because you have speculators on both sides. Some people are betting it's going to go higher. Some people it's going to go lower. And then there's the actual price that oil is trading in the open market. So it's just again, it's a function of what happens, um, you know, with this you know movement in oil prices over time and, and people speculating on what the outcomes are going to be. So when you get when you get these backwardations that occur. Those eventually, and you know, you're talking about the jaws between economic data. It's like, oh, you have GDP and GDI, which there's a big gap between those two, and that shouldn't exist. So when you get these backwardations, those prices eventually have to correct themselves. And that's why after every one of these backwardations, you basically have a collapse in oil prices.
0: All right. And just to help folks think about it, the way I think about it is, is it's almost like with the inverted yield curve where people are saying... um you're're you're, you're willing to pay more for short-term certainty because you're nervous about what's going to happen in the long run. This generally is where people are freaking out that okay, oh my gosh, supply's getting low and and prices are going higher. I need to get my hands on it right now. so they're willing to pay a lot to get it now. and eventually that that panic ends, right? And then the price cracks downwards.
1: right, right. So so again, so so this is what's going on with oil prices now. Again, to the the now back to the more important part, right, the interest rate, inflation, you know, environment and then what drives ultimately bond prices. So, you know, if we if we look at, you know, GDP as a function of what happens whenever you have and this is so the blue line is a three year average GDP growth and then the black lines oil prices. And what you'll notice is that when you have these big spike in oil prices, you also have a, a growth in economic Uh, growth rates. And again, so back in the 70s, everybody everybody wants to go back and revisit that period. Like, oh my gosh, remember in the 70s when we had, you know, spiking interest rates and and spiking oil prices, it was terrible. We had back-to-back recessions, and we did. But again, oil, you know, back then three-year average growth rate of GDP was near 12%. So very different environment than where we're growing today. At, you know, on average. Since 2000, we've been growing close to 2%. Now, this is nominal GDP, not real. So this is three-year nominal GDP. We were growing on, on average at about 3%, four You know, from 2000. We've had this spike up recently to about 8% because of all that money we injected into the economy. So that's why we got inflation, right? You had this big surge in economic growth because you had all this activity of shutting down the economy, this demand that then required this big massive increase in activity to meet that demand. So you had this big surge in economic growth, but that's unsustainable uh, because you don't have the monetary inputs anymore. Those are that liquidity slowly coming out of the system, but that's also why when you had that big surge in economic growth, you subsequently had the big surge in oil prices as well, because you had more demand for oil coming in than what the supply would be. So as that normalizes and as GDP slows, oil prices will slow as well. Again, you see this back in 2008, we had peak oil, GDP was growing, was was going higher, and then as soon as we popped the market, we had a big, a big decline in GDP because of the financial crisis, and oil prices crashed right along with it. Exactly what you expect. It's all about supply and demand, ultimately, and imbalances that occur. Deficits also matter. Um, When you have big surging deficits, you're going to have, you know, uh, uh, you know, oil prices moving. So. Again, you know, whenever we've had you know big deficits, we've we've seen spikes in oil. That causes some type of you know economic you know event, and then we have to do more deficit spending to try to bail everything out, and that's when oil prices are collapsing. And then back we slowly get back on our feet. Oil prices rise. We have the next event. We have to go into more deficit spending, and it's just a cycle we keep repeating. And you know, we recently had this big surge in uh, spending with the Inflation Reduction Act. And we saw that spike in oil prices again. So, you know, this is just this kind of cycle we repeat with, with, you know, over time. And this is with inflation. Again, a very high correlation with oil prices and inflation. Inflation's coming down, oil prices are falling along with it. So, yes, to to Luke's point, if we do get higher oil prices, inflation's gonna tick up. But again, that's not the measure that we really look at in inflation because we talk about core, which is X food and energy. And if we take a look at this relative to interest rates, we can see that even during these periods where we had spiking peak oil, yes, interest rates ticked up somewhat. In 2006, 2007, interest rates were rising. And then when oil prices collapsed, so long did interest rates as well. And that's that's kind of been this consequence And we had the trade war back in 2017, 2018 under the Trump administration, interest rates were ticking up. The Fed went to their taper tantrum. You know, we're nowhere near the neutral rate And then when uh, everything kind of wheels came off the cart economically, oil prices collapsed. So again, we're gonna see the same issue here. When we hit a recession, interest rates are gonna fall, oil prices are gonna climb because of lack of demand, and you wind up in the same boat. I mean, the recession is gonna be the thing that cures all of these inflationary evils.
0: Okay, so um, what I hear you saying from all this data um, is, all right, if you're taking the Groman approach, you're saying, hey, there's actually lots of reasons to expect, at least in this part of the cycle, for oil prices to be coming down, right? As GDP mean reverts downwards, as inflation disinflates, et cetera, right? Um, And so if if you're gonna make a um, uh, bond yields tied to oil prices argument, well, oil prices, from your outlook here, more likely to moderate going forward from here, at least in the nearest term. And that's going to bring um, bond yields down, sorry, yeah, down with it, raising bond prices, right? So you're nodding, am, am I getting your your argument here? I, I I just want to say that that Luke, I think, was making more of a secular commentary about mm-hmm. bond yields. While well, he did say, I'm not going to buy them right now, He he also did say, hey, these guys might be right in the short term. Right. And I kind of think that maybe that's it's almost sort of semantics where I think you and your partner, Mike Leibowitz, are saying, hey, yeah, we think in the relatively near term next six months, two years, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Those moderating effects are going to happen that you mentioned, but probably something's going to break and the Fed's going to have to step in with easing and pivoting and all that stuff. And that's going to be the opportunity to ride the long bond. I don't necessarily hear you saying oh, we're buying these, you know, we're, we're selling TLT to get into longer term bonds themselves and then we're going to hold them for the next 20 years. Right. Right? To me, I feel like you're going to hold them until you get this price reversal that you're looking for and then you'll probably sell them and put well, that capital somewhere else.
1: Well, yeah, but think about this. So so again, let's go back to our thesis earlier. So, you know, if you're expecting a recession and a crash in the market, then money's got to go from equities to somewhere, right? So it's it's it, money can't evaporate. So it's got to move somewhere. So it's going to move to the safety of treasuries, and that's going to be the case. And now if that's occurring, then yields are going to come back down towards zero like they did during the, the pandemic. The price of bonds are going to reach maximum price level. And again, unlike a stock, bonds cannot go up in price forever. So a stock can, theoretically, in theory, the price on a stock can go up forever. Right? And, and there's no limit to how far a price of a stock can go as long as willing pe- people are willing to pay up for it. With a bond, though, there is an absolute price peak because interest rates get to zero. So, <laughs> you know, they cannot be priced into infinity because of interest rates eventually stop going down at zero. They, you know, so that's going to be the issue. So, when we get down to those very low yields, uh, sorry, when we get down to to, to uh, very high bond prices at very low yields, there's going to be no reason. To, so, if, if I own a twenty-year bond as an example, and at ten years to maturity. The price of the bond, the, the price of the bond is maximized, the yield is near zero. There's no sense in holding that bond for the other 10 years because right. I maximize my gain for that 20-year period in 10 years. So yeah, you sell the bond. And at that point, stocks are going to be, you know, bed, you know, out with the bath water at that point, where all my opportunity to buy cheap value stocks, et cetera. Are going to exist so yeah i'm going to sell all those bonds i'm gonna go 100 long equities at that point and probably leverage at that point because <laughs> the opportunity is it's going to be the you know it'll be the crisis moment of 2008 where you know you've got nothing but upside in equity prices so you know and i and i'm just waiting for everybody to be you know convinced that when we're on the show everybody's like oh stocks are going to zero when you right. tell me that don't ever touch I'm, a stock again, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to buy everything I can buy with both feet and my neighbor's hands. So, you know, <laughs> this is going to be that way. But yeah, you know, it, it's just a function. And even if we look back, you know, in the, in the, so to the premise that oil prices are going to drive yields higher, it never happened. In 2008, you had oil prices surging to the moon. The belief was, is that peak oil was here and, and, and oil prices were going to $300 a barrel, And interest rates moved up a little bit, but they didn't go shooting off to the moon, right? Because there's a limit of where interest rates can function within the economy. And interest rates are a a reflection of economic growth, wages, and inflation. So in the latest economic report, what happened to wages? Uh,
0: They're softening.
1: They're softening. What happens, what is happening right now with inflation? Is it strengthening or softening?
0: Well, it depends. The trend is softening. Uh, okay. It bounced up yeah. last month, but yes, I know what you're saying.
1: <laughs> okay, Nine to three. OK, it's, yeah. it's, it's weakening. So and, and economic growth is slowing down. Right. I mean, from where we were back in 2020. Right.
0: I mean, so, not if you look at GDP now for the current quarter, but you and I know that that's probably not going to persist. Well, out.
1: it's, it's also, also remember that's nominal and it's annualized. But if we look at the trend of economic growth, it is slowing from that 32% quarter that we had back in 2020, right? So look at the trend of economic growth. So so if if economic growth is slowing, if inflation is is declining and wages are are slowing, interest rates cannot go up.
0: Okay, all right, good. I think we put a really nice bow on this. Thank you for actually doing all the pre-work for this. Um, So, you know, folks clearly know where you are. You are still playing for this opportunity which I'm gonna call a near-term opportunity with a generous definition of what near is, right? You know, could I, I be a quarter, could be a year and a half, we don't know, I, right?
1: You know, I, I wanna be clear, I wanna be really clear about this because I don't want anybody coming back on you or me. When I talked about this two weeks ago, I said my, and I, I remember I wrote the article, I said why I doubled my bond position. My outlook is 18 to 36 months. So if you wanna call that near term, it's fine, but my term for this trade is 18 to 36 months.
0: Okay, great. So year and a half to three years, right? Yeah. Um so uh yeah. So uh okay, and you're 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 waiting to play for this opportunity that we talked about, right? All the reasons yields will come down, price will go up. At some point you'll say, okay, I've gotten everything I can get out of this trade. There's now way better valuations appearing in other assets. I'm gonna rotate out of that into those. Yeah. Um last question, it could just because I'm curious. Um if You know, I think Luke is making a case for secularly higher interest rates. Uh, He didn't say this, but but I'll say it, you know, for the next decade or two relative to where interest rates have been for the past decade or two. Do you have an opinion on that?
1: Yeah. Um, So, again, let's go back to what drives interest rates, economic growth, wages and inflation. So if and and look, so the argument is if you're if you want to have secularly higher economic growth, so instead of growing at two percent, as we've been doing since the turn of the century, we're now going to grow at three percent. Okay, so at three percent economic growth, interest rates should be somewhere between three and four percent. That that should be where that is. If interest rate, if if economic growth is now four percent, then we should be somewhere between, you know three and 5%, somewhere in there. Interest rates are gonna be fairly close within a percentage point uh, uh, over or below the current economic growth rate in the economy. So you've got to make, so now go back to the issue. What is gonna be the driver for higher rates of economic growth in the future and the ability to sustain that rate of growth with higher interest rates when you have a five to one leverage ratio in the economy?
0: Right. So I don't I don't think that we're going to have higher average uh, GDP growth going forward than we've had. Um, but I guess maybe a counter argument is we had interest rates at sort of artificially low levels for the past couple of decades. Right. There was a lot of intervention to keep them low. Are we going to be able to have that going forward, especially with debt levels as high as they are, where the world is just sort of waking up to the fact that you know there's just sort of more risk baked into the cake, and the Fed can't intervene with impunity as much as it did because it's going to create things like inflation.
1: Well, uh, again, you know, we had no inflation for 12 years because the Fed was doing quantitative easing, you know, one bout after another, and keeping rates artificially suppressed, and we had no inflation from 2009 to 2020. The only reason we have inflation now, and this is the one thing that everybody keeps mistaking, is the only reason that we have inflation today is because you shut down the economy and gave five trillion dollars worth of money to households. To
0: spend. Yeah, it's the fiscal because that goes straight into the veins. Yeah,
1: that that's it. If if the if the government would have just done nothing, right? Let the economy do what it's going to do. Look, and, and we we look, we have the flu every year. We've had pandemics in the past. When we had the Spanish flu, we didn't even shut down the economy. If the economy would have been left alone, yes, you know, we would have gone through this whole pandemic issue. We could have worn masks. We could have done vaccines and all this. There was really no reason to shut down the economy. But assuming we didn't, the economy would have slowed down. Inflation would have come down some. Interest rates would have come down some at that point because it had a recession. We would have gone through it. We would have been back on a normal track. And we still wouldn't have had the level of inflation that we saw because you shut down the economy and put in $5 trillion worth of debt. Maybe inflation would have been 4%. Maybe it would have been 5% at most, but I doubt it would have even been that because the economy was not growing that strong back then. Again, we've been running a 2.2% growth rate in the, of the century. There was nothing to change that dynamic. Um, and, and so except for the shutdown of the economy and $5 trillion in checks. So if we just get back to normalcy now, right and the fed is doing nothing we're going to be growing it somewhere below between two uh, percent and 1.8 percent. even the feds own long-term projections for economic growth is 1.8 percent now and with the debt problem that we currently have it's probably going to be somewhere closer to one and a half percent that's just a function of debt on economic growth right you, you just you know you can't just magically create economic activity when you have high interest rates it's already curtailing the spending of consumers they're already being impacted by higher interest rates. So it trying to, and, and look what's happening with mortgages on homes. Can you imagine trying to maintain a seven, eight or 9% mortgage rate in an economy and trying to sell houses at the same time? You know, that's one of your bigger inputs into the economy and it's just not going to be sustainable.
0: Okay. All right. I, there's more to dig into there, but we got to leave that for a different yeah, that's day. That's a whole show. Yeah, that is a whole show. Um, all right. So, um, uh there is a piece you wrote where I'm just going to tell folks to go uh read it. It's germane to what we're talking about here, but you wrote a piece called The Deficit Surge Will Lead to Lower Rates, not higher rates going forward. I think it's really important for folks to understand that we don't have time to dig into it today here because I got to land the plane and we got a few other things we got to mention first. Um uh so let me just jump to remind everybody that um Lance, one of the shoes that I think you think uh when it drops, which it is about to, um, could actually be really meaningful in the story of how perhaps we get from here to a potential recession, which is uh, student loan repayments resuming. And here as of the first day of September, student loans are officially now accruing interest again. And those interest payments will have to start and servicing payments will have to start uh, 30 days from now uh, at the beginning of October, right?
1: Can can, can I, can I say something really quick? Oh, Um, absolutely. I got a great email. Um, so my son has a Sally May loan, uh, for his college. And I got an email from them because I had to co-sign for his loan. And they sent me an email and said, just a reminder, Sally May is not a federal student loan. So anybody that has told you there's been any sort of forgiveness or, 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 uh, any reduction in the payment that you owe is incorrect. Your loan is accruing interest. Your first payment is due on the first day of October, because we are not part of the federal loan. We are a private loan committee through, you know, Sally Mae. <laughs> so it was, my point was, is I thought it was interesting. They, I mean, immediately they sent an email saying you are, you know. Hey, you you're
0: on the hook, pay, buddy.
1: Yeah, yeah. You have to pay this loan. And so don't think you're getting off on anything. So, you know, and, and there's a lot of these, you know, private loans that are out there that, um, you know, were put together that people owe money on and they, and they're, you know, going, oh, well, I don't have to make a payment on it because it's a federal loan. It's not. You owe the money on it.
0: Well, it, so I, I chuckle there um, just because these, these GSEs, these government, is it sponsored entities? Yeah. Um, they just love to have their cake and eat it too, right? You know, when they want to be bailed out, oh, we're a public entity, you, you, you got to bail us out,
1: right? When they want their money, I'm private, send me money. Exactly,
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, So, um, All right, but- so anyways, I just want to let folks know that that we've been talking about this. It's been academic for just quarters and quarters of discussion on this channel. It's now beginning to become actual, all right? Um, and I, I can't remember, I, I actually don't think we talked about it last week because we had the, the um, end of life Presentation, but um, uh, there was a survey that came out last week uh, that CNBC reported, and I'm, I'm going to forget the numbers exactly. But um, there was some large percentage, north of fifty percent, uh, of survey respondents who said, "I'm actually going to be like deciding between, you know, food and making this this payment." Right, I'm, I'm at, probably going to be at least reducing the food I buy. It's, it's going to be cutting that deep into my essential spending. Go ahead.
1: That's a, that. That's a very critical point, point. and I think it's something that has been overlooked by the media. Look, I, I've I've been I've written about this already. You're talking about a, a 12 to 15 billion dollar hit on a month. The thing about student loans is is they are not dischargeable through bankruptcy. Right. So when you're having to make that decision about what do I pay and don't pay, you don't get out of it by filing bankruptcy. So if I'm gonna if I think I'm going to wind up Having to file bankruptcy at some point, I'm not going to pay my credit card. I'm not going to, you know, pay other debtors because I got I've got bankruptcy protection on those things. I'm going to pay the student loan because I don't have bankruptcy protection on that. So I think we might see some of this spread. Yes, to your point, see a reduction on maybe eating out as much. You know, we've seen a lot of millennial spendings on you know entertainment and experiences versus durables. Um, we'll see a we'll see a cut there, but we could also see those bankruptcies uh, and, and credit card delinquencies really starting to pick up.
0: Yeah, well, that's a great point. Right. Which is what debt do you default on? Will you default on the debt that you can discharge in bankruptcy? Right. So, you know, just this-
1: nobody, nobody cares about credit card. You know, back in the day when you and I were growing up, if you if you, you know, didn't pay a credit card company then you couldn't get credit for like seven years if you declared bankruptcy it was like 10 years before anybody would give you credit now everybody's like a badge of honors oh you filed bankruptcy oh here's more credit
0: well <laughs> exactly know? i i know people no who cares. have declared bankruptcy and like literally the next day they're getting credit card out
1: yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous no, no cares.
0: um but uh but yeah to your point the pressure on the student loan side could actually manifest in you know higher delinquency rates and, and other types of, of debt um so uh, important reminder that it's not dischargeable in bankruptcy. Um, but uh, what was interesting is another stat in the same survey. It was something like forty-five percent said that they expect their loans to go delinquent when they go into repayment. Where they're de- uh, at least, I took it as sort of like uh, I'm just not going to be able to pay them, right? Like I'm just I know at some point I'm just not going to be able to make these payments. I don't know if there was also a, a, an element in there of just like, hey, screw the government. If we all hold hands and don't pay, we can stick it to these bastards, right? And there's a lot of that going on in sort of, you know, internet chat rooms and TikTok and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to see. But as you and I have talked about, that's a pretty big risk because your opponent's the government and this stuff isn't dischargeable in uh, in bankruptcy. So, you know, you could have a really unforgiving lender uh, you know, in this story.
1: It was it was a, just real fast. I mean, it was a really bad precedent that the government put out in the first place saying, hey, you know, we're going to forgive these loans and blah, blah, blah. You know, because, again, it gave people hope that, oh, I took out, you know, I've got one hundred thousand in student loan debt that I took out. You know, I took it out. I signed the paperwork. I I went to the classes. I did all that. That was all that was all on me. And now the government's saying they're going to give it to me for free. That's awesome that was just a bad precedent. If they were going to do this, they should have done it behind closed doors. They should have never announced it and made sure that it was all legal up front and then say, okay, we're going to forgive student loans.
0: Yeah, uh, but it, it shows you why this was such a politically motivated.
1: Yeah, but but now you've thing. created this whole environment where stu- guys are going, you know, again, I was like, you know, we're going to hold hands and join in solidarity and all default on our loans at the same time. You know, you're going to do so much financial damage to yourself. It's just, it's just it was the same thing with, People, you know, doing, uh, um, you know, uh, what's the word? I forgot um, where people were basically delin- uh, you know, basically pushing out their mortgage payments on their, on their houses. And it wasn't a moratorium, but, uh, you know, they, they were going through this whole premise, like, oh, I'm going to negotiate with the bank and I'm not going to pay any mortgage payments for this period of time. And all that interest was accruing the whole time. Right. And and, and this has just come back to bite these people terribly you know, in this and though this, but this is all part of what we created during that whole economic shutdown, and we just you know, we just proliferated a whole bunch of bad financial policies for people trying in, in the name of trying to help them, right? I, and, and again, you know, I, I I get why we did it. We were trying to help people that were in in a spate of trouble because we shut down the economy. But human nature is is oh great, I've got an, I've got an ability to go spend money on something else that I want rather than paying my bills. And now it's all gonna come home to roost at the worst possible time.
0: Yeah. And and this I had different rants, but but at least a mini one here is politically, I don't know exactly really when this started. Maybe it's been going on forever, but we have this almost sort of like policy creation process via hostage taking, right? Where we basically will have whichever administration's in, in power, I'm not trying to make this partisan because I think both sides are guilty of it, okay. where well, they'll come out and they'll say, hey, we're announcing massive program X, right? And uh, you know they, they get everybody, they get the public bought into it. And then they turn around to the opposition and say, well, of course, now you've got to pass this thing because we have all these people that are now at risk, right? right. Um, and uh, I, I'm probably gonna get a lot of blowback for this, but with the Affordable Healthcare Act, you know, we expanded healthcare coverage to millions, tens of millions of people. From a from a heart perspective, very noble. You know, these people, it's it's an essential benefit for them. Right. But we had no plan how to pay for it. Right. But we got the people insured. And then we basically turned around and said, OK, well, how are we going to finance this? Right. They're,
1: and they're, they're, and, and they're all of a sudden, them. anybody
0: opposing that is is against pulling healthcare away from these people. But it's like, wait a minute, no, you gave it to all of them without a plan. Right. And now you're holding them hostage to us. So we've got to find some way to afford this, which, of course, it's not economically sustainable. And so we have to rack up more debt and tax more people and, and you know, jack up rates for the people who are paying full freight. And, and you know, again, I'm not trying to make it a partisan comment here, but we we, we create this hostage and then try to figure out, you know, how it's going to be debt funded, as opposed right. to saying, "Hey, what's a su- economically sustainable way to do the types of things we want to do?"
1: Yeah. We spent hundreds of billions of dollars on those healthcare exchanges that all went bankrupt. We, you know, we we raised the cost on everybody that was that was healthy paying insurance. So now healthcare costs have risen dramatically, and ironically, the 20 million people that were supposed to get coverage still don't have coverage. So the the whole premise never worked the way that it was that it was said that it was going to work. Um, it just raised healthcare costs, and and it, and we and to your point, we spent billions of dollars on stuff that now we have to wind up paying for, um, and we still haven't solved the problem. Which is, you need if you want to fix healthcare, you've got to fix tort reform, you've got to fix the medical billing practices, you've got to get government out of the middle of it. And again, when you put the government in the middle of anything, it's going to drive cost up. We can talk about student loans for that function yeah, and efficiency um, down. Yeah, and 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 again, you know, there are there are places where you you pay cash for healthcare, and healthcare is extremely cheap. So you know, plastic surgery is a good example. Non-elective surgery comp- competition keeps prices down. Quality of healthcare goes up. You know, that's the model that we need to be implementing. You know, twenty-five dollar copays sound great, but it drives up the cost of healthcare for everybody. So there's very simple fixes, but we don't want to tackle those. It's just like fixing Social Security, right? Nobody wants to fix Social Security <laughs> because. Nobody wants to do what's required to do it, but eventually it's going to fix itself because social security is going to run out of money. So we'll be forced to fix social security in a very painful manner at some point down the road, rather than doing very small fixes right now, just raise the retirement age, uh, increase I- increase contribution limits on social security payments. Instead of being capped at $137,000 and $400,000 of income, you know, everybody, no matter how much money you make, you pay into social security. Very small changes you could make that would bail out Social Security and Medicare and make it sustainable for decades. It's not sustainable long term because of the birth birth rate population, but we could certainly extend the year, you know, st- extend it for five decades by small changes today that we're not willing to make.
0: No, all right. Well, look, um, you and I could rant about that. I'm sure for another three hours. Yeah. I'm going to basically jettison everything else I have on the
1: uh, just save it for the next agenda. week. It's all good stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's all going to next week. Um, But uh, but of course, Lance, we got to talk about trades, right? Can't can't leave without talking about trades. What have you guys done, if anything, over the past week?
1: So the only only did uh, really some. So so you know over the last during this that whole correction process, you know, we were talking about taking advantage of the correction to to buy stuff, and and so we did quite. You know, we added to Apple and Microsoft and Google and and those companies. Um, Over so now we're down to the part of just we kind of just you know, kind of rejiggering, you know, balances within the portfolio to um, take advantage of opportunities. So this past week, uh, we had, uh, we, we've we owned AMD for quite some time. So we added NVIDIA to our portfolio this week, or early on Monday. Um, and then we added to our small regional banks this week. So we had bought uh, back during the financial crisis back in March, <laughs> you know, if you want to call it that the savings crisis, whatever, uh, back in March, you know, we we bought small starter positions in Truist Financial and PNC uh, Bank. And we added just a little bit to those this week because they had a nice little run. They pulled back to support. Um, and so we just added a little bit more, continuing to kind of build our position there. If interest rates come down, those banks are going to do very well.
0: Okay, great. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, in wrapping things up here, I want to remind folks that uh, tickets are now on sale and selling fast for Ones uh, online fall conference on Saturday, October 21st. Uh, the faculty uh, continues to just build out at, at a great, amazing pace. It's definitely the best faculty that we've ever had for one of these events. And if you've attended one of them, uh, you really have a good sense of what I'm talking about here in terms of the high caliber of guests. Um, real quick, let me just run through the big names. Uh, we got Lacey Hunt kicking it off. He'll be delivering the keynote. If you've watched these in the past, you know that his keynote is worth the price of admission in and of itself. We'll have Jim Grant there, the godfather of interest rates. He'll be talking about uh, what he see, where he sees them headed in 2024. We'll have Mike Kantrowitz there talking about the HOPE framework with a laser focus on the E element that Lance and I were talking about earlier in this conversation. Uh, we'll have Kyle Bass there talking about the ge- biggest geopolitical risks that he thinks are going to impact the economy next year. Stephanie Pomboy will be back giving us her latest on uh, how she sees the forces of inflation and deflation resolving We'll have Ivy Zelman there talking about the housing market. there Will then be a reaction to Ivy's presentation from housing analysts Nick Jurley and Amy Nixon. Uh, We'll have uh, Lance's uh, partner in crime there, Michael Liebowitz, there, giving us the latest outlook on bonds. We'll have Rick Rule giving his uh, latest stock picks in the natural resources space. On the energy side we'll have doomberg there talking about the global energy situation he'll be joined by justin hewn of uranium insider to talk about the specific opportunities that are emerging in investing in nuclear of course we'll have our advisors there like lance and the guys from new harbor and jonathan wellum from up there in canada we've got one or two other uh guests that we're landing right now we're going to add some other big names to that list but anyways if that sounds of any interest to you go to wealthion.com slash conference and uh, you can learn more about the conference, but, but if you're interested, register soon because you can claim our deepest discount, which is the early bird price discount, which is about 30% off the full price for tickets. And if you've been an alumnus of one of our conferences in the past, uh, check your email from me because you'll have a discount code to get an additional 15% discount off of that 30% discount. Um, and then just in wrapping up, as we do every week, highly recommend to navigate the environment that's most likely to be coming ahead, that you do so in combination with a financial advisor who understands and takes into account all the issues that Lance and I have talked about here. If you've got a good one who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, or you'd like a second opinion from one, maybe even Lance and his team there at Real Investment Advice, I uh, then consider scheduling a free consultation with one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. Just fill out the short form at Wealthion.com and we'll set one up for you. Uh, These consultations, they are totally free. There's no commitment to work with these guys, just a public service that people with golden hearts like Lance offer to help as many people as possible position as prudently as possible in advance of what may be coming. Um, And if you enjoy Lance and I kicking back and having these conversations week after week after week after week, um, please let us know by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, you get the last word, buddy.
1: Uh, Have a great Labor Day. Enjoy your weekend. Next week will be a shortened trading week, so we'll have uh, less to talk about next week, right?
0: All right. Oh, I forgot to mention this too. Yeah, one of the things I was going to talk about was the importance of keeping play in your life. As folks are watching this when it releases on Saturday, I'm going to be at... uh, Annually, my funnest day of the year, which is uh, the Gentlemen's Olympics, which is where I get together with a bunch of guys. We dress up in kind of old timey clothes, uh, and we do all these different kind of yard games. Everything from you know horseshoes to darts to bocce to pool to ping pong to axe throwing. Um, so uh, I'll have a lot to report from that when we come back on next week, Lance. Sounds fun. All right, everyone else, have a great uh, long holiday weekend. Thanks so much for another great week, Lance. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.